Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea podcast where we spin the jams and spill the tea and each week we talk about some new music and music news. We do indeed and I want to lead off this week by talking about an artist who's had a pretty steady ascent into popularity and success over the last year or so. Uh, and that is the artist Zach Bryan, who you might remember I've talked about Zach in the past uh, when I talked about his album American Heartbreak, which is one of my favorite records of last year. I think an incredibly impressive album that kind of begged attention to itself with its, you know, 36 tracks, two hour length, and the fact that it basically holds up for that runtime, a really impressive album of beautifully well-written songs. And Zach, as an artist who kind of came up in the underground essentially kind of worked his way up to that point uh very modestly has found himself at a really fruitful juncture just in terms of pop culture crossover potential because basically the dominant genre in the pop charts this year has been country and zach had some success with his song something in the orange which is my favorite song on american heartbreak i think an incredible song talked about it in my in the songs of the year video i think and so to see that song become as successful as it was, was really exciting for me. All eyes are on Zach. All eyes were, have been on Zach to follow up that record and to basically live up to the potential for crossover that the success of something in the orange promised. And it looks as though that's happening. Zach's just released a new album, self-titled album. And the song I Remember Everything with Casey Musgraves uh, seems to be set, I mean, at time of recording, and this could age terribly, but at time of recording, it seems to be set to take number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and it will have either done that or not by the time this video goes out, so you'll know. That would really cement the ascendancy of Zach if it did happen, and it would be pretty incredible as well for that, for that song to go to number one on its chart debut as well for Zach, who's an artist who really hasn't been in the pop culture consciousness consciousness for that long. Uh, I think it would be Casey's first number one song as well, which is kind of crazy to think about since she's been grinding for over a decade. So yeah, yeah. we're at a really unique juncture where we have the potential for, for one of the most annoying viral hits of the year, Oliver Anthony's Richmond, North of Richmond, which we haven't talked about on the show. I don't know that I necessarily feel the need for us to talk about it. It's a remarkable... I, I still haven't heard it in full, so... Remarkably stupid song. Like, it's just... It is generally agreeable platitude after generally agreeable platitude after generally agreeable platitude. Also... Until it becomes fatphobic. Well, until this... it's It really cannot be overstated how funny the line about I don't want my tax dollars paying for your fudge rounds is when you hear it in the context of the song, especially if you're not expecting it for this song to potentially be replaced by one of my favorite up and coming country artists who, you know, I, I wanted to believe was too indie to do that, which just really speaks to my own biases and assumptions. Um, you know, Zach Bryan is, and yeah, you know, and I'm hesitant to say this because, you know, these things, you say things like this and you commit them and you know the ash heap of history it may well 
support what you say or it may well make you look like a fool. But Zach Bryan seems to be a good guy and it's awesome to see him having the level of success that he's had. And I hope this song does go to number one because I think it's a great song. I'm curious, what do you guys think about Zach Bryan as people who are, I think, more new to him than I am? What do you think about the, the song and what do you think about his new record? I like Zach Bryan well enough. Um, I haven't heard all of American Heartbreak because I can I can barely commit to listening to an album that is of a reasonable length. Everything I heard off of that album was great. You know, something in the orange is sort of at least at least where we live uh, that has really taken taken hold here as a sort of a modern standard. This new album I was pretty excited to get to um, just, you know, to to have one under my belt so I can I have a more f- uh, firm take on this guy that I generally like and definitely think is a presence for good in music currently. And I, I like the album well enough. I'm honestly not in love with the dude's voice. I think he's a really solid writer. Um, and, his, and his vocal presence is often, you know, an important part of the song and an enjoyable part of it. I, I don't know, there's something about it that sort of fails to resonate. This is just sort of a personal issue that I still feel like I'm working through in regards to this guy in particular. The guy's presence just doesn't hook me the way that it should. A lot of the songs on here, you know, it's interesting. They vary from like having full on horn sections to feeling a little scant and unfinished to really feeling like they should be a little more scant. Uh, Like some of these, particularly in the back half, I feel like are like, there's just like unnecessary amounts of reverb on stuff. And there's like one that was recorded outside clearly. And there's like a a, a ribbiting frog. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which I, I thought was I, oh, for a little bit of the animal collective with that one <laughs> yeah of the things to be successful lately it's hard not to co-sign you know relative to how everything is going um and it, where even if my own enjoyment of it is, is relatively lukewarm as the other kentuckian country music enjoyer I was also looking forward to the new Zach Bryan album. So I I didn't go back and listen to American Heartbreak yet. It's still on my list. And no, I don't have any good excuse for not having heard it because I listened to that stupid fucking Morgan Wallen album this year and I still haven't heard American Heartbreak. So bad, Jake. Bad, 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 bad. But I did rectify uh, a little bit by listening to his debut album, Deanne, this week. Um, just because that was the first thing I had heard of uh, in regards to Zach Bryan years and years ago. I actually uh, was recommended uh, that album back when, before Zach had even blown up um, because a coworker of mine knew Zach and was like, hey, this album's really good. And I put it in my library and then forgot about it. I listened to it this week and was very, very impressed with it. It was a fantastic showcase of great songwriting. Nothing but that. It was a very like, Nick Drake, Pink Moon, stripped back, nothing but a guy in an acoustic guitar type of affair. It is basically just a showcase for Zach as a presence and as a songwriter. Uh, and as a songwriter, I think he's excellent. He really managed to captivate me on that record, and I cried twice listening to Deanne. It's it's great. Um, so I was like, okay, I am fully now on board the Zach Bryan train. Uh, so when listening to this, it was easy to latch on to a lot of the things that I feel like are 
immediately apparent that he's grown from since that debut. Like I was obviously like, all right, uh, I enjoy acoustic singer songwriter music, but I want to see Zach Bryan level up in terms of ambition. Uh, and between this and American Heartbreak, it seems that he's certainly done that. Uh, and with this album in particular, the, the most notable thing about it is the breadth of the sound. It draws from so many different musical wells that I find it very refreshing. I think the one thing, the, the one point for comparison that a lot of people I've heard have gone back to is that this is like clearly an album that somebody who's listened to a lot of Bright Eyes makes and can confirm. I, I thought of Casadega and... Um, uh, I was about to say, what's the story, Morning Glory? Jesus fucking Christ. You're thinking of I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning. I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning. And as an enormous fan of both of those albums, even though I can only remember the name of one of them, I was very pleased with that. And not just when it comes to sound. I feel like when it comes to songwriting as well, this is somebody who takes a couple pages out of the Connor Oberst or, you know, if you want to go further back than that, the Bob Dylan playbook on occasion. Zach's writing is a little bit more personable, but when he gets a little bit more into the weeds when it comes to metaphors and what have you, that's certainly something that you can tell he is inspired by. And I like that a lot. And generally speaking, I do really like the album. It's just that for somebody like us who really value the album as a format, this album really isn't for us. To me, this album exists to do one thing. He's laid the groundwork for his success, and this album is to take advantage of his, you know, rising tide, basically, which is why you have the Casey Musgraves feature, which is why you have all the other features on here, like the Warren Treaty, Sierra Farrell, or the Lumineers. But it does have certain limitations. I wouldn't necessarily say I think the album is too long. I just think that there's sort of a point where the songs start to lose definition for me. I think personally that if this album ended at Tourniquet, probably a much stronger overall end product for me. I do not like the Lumineers collab very much, um, not just because it's a Lumineers collab, but just also because I feel like their vocal chemistry is very non-existent. It's like whenever they harmonize, it's like they barely even exist on the song. And it just kind of feels like an afterthought overall. But that song, uh, Tradesmen, Smaller Acts, they, they come across as lesser moments on the album to me that don't necessarily need to be there. Though I do think that Oklahoma Sun is a solid way to finish everything off. Again, the Casey Musgraves feature, I remember everything. I think that's one of the best songs on here. Uh, I also like it when he goes way more you know, deep into storytelling, like on Jake's Piano. Thank you, Zach. Long Island. Um, I think that's a fantastic song. It feels like Zach is trying to maybe overextend himself in terms of ambition. And I do appreciate that. But at the same time, it doesn't really feel like he quite sticks the landing every single time. But the core of what makes a great songwriter and the core of what makes a great country musician is totally here. When it comes to embodying all of the things that I value and that I want out of modern country music, Zach Bryan's got it. Yeah, I, I like this album considerably more than you two, although I will say that 
the degree to which I was initially smitten with it when I first heard it has waned a little bit. I do think there are aspects of this record that show Zach pushing forward from American Heartbreak in some really interesting ways. I think that his sound is a little bit more expansive here. He's set these songs in a really kind of moody atmosphere. There's a lot of space in the mixes. There is reverb, as has been pointed out. It feels like he's kind of going for a little bit of like a like a Daniel Lanois sort of sound where he's trying to, again, I, I tell that I can, I know that he's super influenced by Bob Dylan. Like he's been vocal about that. And you hear that come through on lots of parts of American Heartbreak as well. So I can see him trying to like channel a little bit of that time out of mind or oh mercy sort of sound into what he's doing here with, mm -hmm. with that aspect of, of of vibrance to the mixes. But yeah, it's not going to be for everyone. And it does mean that I think sometimes the songs end up feeling a little bit more skeletal and a little bit less, I suppose, memorable than what American Heartbreak so wonderfully achieved. Uh, across its runtime so yeah i don't think this is as strong as that record it does feel a little bit thrown together somewhat i, I suppose and i don't think of zach as someone who who cynically tries to cash in on the moment or capitalize but i do have to imagine there was some degree of pressure for him with the success of something in the orange to kind of deliver something that felt like a piece of organic artistic growth as well as something that would have potential for him and what i really admire about it is that it's not really a record that fits in or really tries to approximate many of the trends in pop country at all. And this is the thing that's so striking to me about I Remember Everything. Like while there there is like a quite uh, friend, familiar and satisfying and immediate sort of vocal melody to that song, you could see why people would get that kind of lilting pattern stuck in their heads. And it's beautiful and the, their vocals are mingling in a really nice way on that song. It's remarkable, though, how that aside, the song doesn't really go for a lot of the big tropes of pop country. I mean, there's some cliches and lyricism, but I mean, you look at the album as a whole and it's really striking how Zach doesn't seem to want to completely commit to pigeonholing himself within the realm of country as it exists right now. He wants to maintain some of that indie cred. He wants to have this possibility, I think, to step forward into the rock lane as well. He's leaving doors open for himself with this record, I think. And so in that way, it can feel like he's at a bit of a crossroads. But the moments... I mean, the biggest moments on this record, the moments that really stand out to me, songs like Overtime, songs like East Side of Sorrow, songs like Oklahoma Sun, and especially Jake's piano, Long Island, which I think is one of the finest songs of the year that I've heard. Anyway, I, I, that song just completely rips me apart. And I love how subtly it builds and crests to its emotional climax. It, it, it shows the influence of, dare I say, a band like The National uh, creeping in here as well to a certain degree. And, and I yep. really appreciate that. Uh, Morgan commented on Zach's voice and how it's a bit of a bit of a sticking point, and I can understand that. And this is uh, again, it's we're we're coming, we're approaching Zach from different perspectives and positions and relationships with the music. So it's for me where that's something that's kind of holding the music back a little bit for Morgan. It's something that's really kind of emphasizing the appeal of it for me, and that's because Zach does not have a very professional sounding voice. He doesn't have a very trained sounding voice. In fact, quite a lot of the time, he's audibly straining in his performances. And that, you know, it's, again, it's something that different shades of that are going to rub people certain ways. For me, it's, it's always been the case. And I imagine when I go back to Zach's earlier music as well, that quality will 
enhance the emotional intensity of those songs. But to me, it really sounds like Zach is giving a lot of himself into these performances. Like you can feel that, you know, he's pushing at the boundaries of his voice. He's really bringing up something from the chest that you can feel in the way that he sings. It's maybe not the most sustainable or healthy way to sing. And it's certainly maybe not the most, you know, um, aesthetically beautiful or traditionally appropriate or whatever but it adds this gravity to his performances that I think he really banks on with some of the bigger moments here. And so I really love Zach's voice for that quality, for that sense with which he's really pushing at his limits. It's, it's a stellar record for me. I'm really, really enjoying it. And again, I echo that sentiment as well, that, you know, regardless of how much the record clicks with you as a whole, it's nice to have a figure like Zach basically occupying the spot and maybe pushing um, it's not like he's doing anything terribly progressive musically, but he's setting a good example, right? And it's uh, a really low standard, you know, a really low bar. To, it should be a really low bar to cross. But in this era where country music is either like so vague as to be completely apolitical or just straight conservative dog whistling, it's nice to have someone who isn't really concerned with that arena at all, but just brings really emotional storytelling to the table and that's the thing i think zach's really good at is he's a great storyteller you know you can tell which artists in this realm are really looking to the great songwriters and the great storytellers to actively influence their music versus who's just content to hit the template well now that we've addressed the zach bryan phenomenon uh, let's move on to I, don't, I looked for things that I thought would be interesting or funny, like news items and that relate to music I thought were interesting or funny. And um, the this is probably just reflecting poorly on me more so than the state of news this week. But the biggest, the thing that I could find that stood out to me the most was this minor controversy regarding Vivek Ramaswamy and Eminem. So there was this there's this minor feud oh, that's happening no. between these two figures at the moment. Uh, if you don't know who Vivek Ramaswamy is, he's one of the front runners uh, for the Republican nomination for president in next year's election. Of course, he won't get it. The Republican nominee is going to be Donald Trump. It's all but certain. Uh, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who are having fun, you know, riffing and shit. So... And and positioning basically, and and positioning for angling for their God bless them. And you know, normally I wouldn't touch the shit with a ten foot pole because it's depressing and and stupid. But Vivek Ramaswamy has had to. So if you don't know who he is, he's this kind of billionaire tech guy who's decided to be fun to run for president and operate on a campaign essentially of contrarianism. His whole political philosophy essentially amounts to know you. And that's, you know, and that in of itself is not relevant to what we talk about, but he had to be the literal real life Kendall Roy by showcasing his love for rapping and specifically his love for Eminem. He's been rapping Lose Yourself at a number of campaign events i think or, or sh places where he's been he's very vocal about his love for eminem and so what happened is eventually eminem basically cnd'd him and said look i do not want you to keep using my music and or invoking my music in any context whatsoever 
And Mr. Ramaswamy responded with, uh, I'll respect his wishes, but I'll just say, will the real Slim Shady please stand up? Eminem, in his rise, used to be a guy who stood up to the establishment and said the things that the establishment didn't want him to say. I think the fact that my political viewpoints may differ from his, I think people will change over the course of their lives, but I have hope for him that he will one day rediscover the renegade that made him great, and I'm rooting for that success in his life. And Eminem said, tell it to my lawyer, basically, and I don't want to... You know, that's the other thing about this is I just wanted to bring it up because it's so rare that we get a situation involving a feud with Eminem where we get to basically fairly unequivocally take Eminem's side. Uh, I just thought that was really, really funny. <laughs> and the other thing about this to me is that it continues to amaze me how continuously Republican politicians will get into the situation where a musician calls them out for using their music. And in every single situation, it always makes the politician in question look less cool. It looks like you got mm -hmm. called out by a fucking musician and you want to have the kind of power to run the country. And you know, they still keep doing this shit. They still keep banking on some kind of credibility coming from hitchhiking off of an artist who hasn't endorsed them and who has no interest in them whatsoever. And then has to be put in a position of saying, hey, can you please stop dragging my name into this by rapping like fucking songs at your fucking show? what fucking kills me about this is that it's like not only is it like hysterically off the mark because when you when you talk about the idea of the american establishment and it's just like yeah the notoriously overly conservative american establishment and when he says oh you know the renegade that eminem once was it's just like mr ramaswamy could you when casting your thoughts back for a single solitary second, consider that the thing that he was a renegade against, it was George Bush, you dumbass. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah this mean, is not a secret. This is not a, like a, like, this isn't a thing where it's like, you got to look deep into the lyrics. Just like, like, watch one music video. You, you fool. I think the funniest thing that could happen here is if Joe Biden started playing White America at his show, at his like rallies or whatever. He doesn't have rallies. What am I fucking saying? <laughs> Imagine a hey, Joe Biden rally. A Joe Biden rally. <laughs> Just like <laughs> White America is right. 10,000 people all like completely swarming around this man just so he can kind of tap the mic and go, that's all he has to do. <laughs> Obama. that's that's what i want to see what i want to see at the if there is a kind of debate you know once um once it's the the trump biden debate i want to see them get up there and i want the i want i want them just to both do their obama soda and then leave and walk off the stage america decides obama soda one of the most interesting things about the sort of Biden presidency in the last year or so is that he's really leaning into the bit on occasion, like in a way that's like sometimes when, especially when liberal politicians do this, they, they kind of go a little bit off the deep end and then they just do it. And it's just like, ah, you fucking ruined it. But Joe Biden has the uncanny ability to like 
go so far into it that it just makes it better somehow and like he, he'll like put on the sunglasses i want so desperately for him to like walk into one of these debates sunglasses on like just walking in full like uh just it's jover just like fully leaning into it and i want uh trump like full orange jumpsuit like chains on both his his ankles and his wrist to go up to the podium obama soda like make a spectacle of it like if you if you're gonna drag us through the mud with this horse shit again for another election cycle you might as well fucking entertain me i do like that that biden so biden's aides have clearly done like the calculus and decided that oh yeah it's it's profitable it's gonna it's on balance good for us to do the dark brandon thing and lean into mm-hmm. that um and it's really really funny because what what's striking me about this election compared to well it's still early days but like compared to the 2016 one is that this force of irony was right behind trump in 2016 like everyone you know, mm-hmm. within our age bracket and slightly older was being like, oh, yeah, how funny would it be? Trump president, haha, that's my president, da 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 All that kind of, you know, ironic humor was just sort of, because it was so funny, like the whole concept was hilarious. And it feels like this election cycle, eight years later, the forces of irony are right around Joe Biden, because there's nothing funnier than just going hard in the paint for Biden. <laughs> and the dude dude's got zingers yeah like there's 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 nothing it's not funny anymore to just be like ah trump you know because you're just like you seem like the least humorous most sort of the biggest sap in the world but it's really funny to be super into biden and to be like that's my man and he's up there you know saying two words a minute slowly putting on a pair of sunglasses while his while his hand trimmers somebody asked him what he thought about trump's mugshot the other day and he was like handsome guy that's good that's, like, that's, that's funny that's suave we, we need this phenomenon to continue i need more politicians running for president to start beef with like the most obviously left-leaning or you know establishment challenging artists and i want them to like anger them as much as possible just so we can get to a point where that's the focus of all the debates like i just want basically i want all of the debates to turn into episodes of the jams and tea podcast that's what i want here macro in the long term that will drive me to end my life but you know whatever you want speaking of politicians you know banking on the cachet of musical artists i have to say i i I admire and appreciate uh, Mitch McConnell's continued commitment to referencing John Cage's 433 and all of his public appearances. <laughs> okay. I Before we move on, can I just say that it's impossible for me to see, to read or hear anything about Ramaswamy without seeing that fucking tweet that's just like, hello, it's me, I'm Indian Hitler. It's like, it's so funny because it's like Indian Hitler who's also like, you know, oh, why didn't you guys like me? You know? He's way more Musk than than anybody else, frankly. Oh, that's just leans rough. into it. He needs he needs his own L to the OG. He wants his own L to the OG. I don't think that it would benefit him to try or even succeed. Um, I would love for him to try. If yeah. he did that, and then Eminem did a diss track. Oh God! Oh God! Please, Eminem. I'm begging. Eminem gets an eight from the Jams and Tea podcast. I don't know if I'm ready for an Eminem redemption yeah, that's, art. 
That's about as likely at this point as Ramaswamy winning the nomination. I really there's a non-zero chance he co- that the next Eminem album is called Redemption because that's the one re he hasn't done yet that feels most obvious. He's done relapse. He's done recovery. He's done revival. I, Redemption. I hate that our discussion has reloading? gone on this much of a tangent Revolutions. that I can even come here. But like, do you guys even think it's possible that Eminem <clears throat> makes a good album again? No. He he could make like a thirty-five minute banger like he could do like a like a nas magic sort of thing even though that was obviously not a one-off for nas nas was in a great period of his career he'll do one of those short albums and then name it like marshall or something like that i I think what's going to happen is at some point eminem's gonna decide he needs to get real but like in a in a real personal way like he's gonna do an album that's about his mother or something he's gonna do an album that's like you know, throwing it back to when I was on the on the playground, uh, and it's going to have like a a mournful piano soul sample thing, and then it's going to and it's going it back to when have, I was on the playground. It's still going to have a chorus that sounds awful because he's going to think he can sing it. I will say though, I've lost no joy in seeing all the various incarnations of animated cartoon characters covering Rap God. I think Mr. Krabs has been my favorite one because he actually is really good at it. <laughs> And he can hit the the really fast part really really well, and um, our our listeners don't know the extent to which half of the interactions we have in our group chat for the podcast is just us sending in various AI cartoon character covers of songs, and not even like cartoon characters. It's really just SpongeBob. It's like most. It's like ninety percent spongebob like it, it started with three days grace and then it just kind of ballooned out from there yeah i said it in our chat so i'll say it here as well the the plankton singing i hate everything about you is i'm like being 90 percent serious the most emotionally responsive i've been to a work of art that i've encountered this year like i or is this just playing in my head like it's so fucking good the, the, man the, my favorite thing about this cover right is that it has not made me like the original more i go back (laughs) it's like i just this guy shouldn't be singing it i don't like him he doesn't have he can't really sell it you know everything i like about that song is the you know the weird detuned guitar sound and just how hard the chorus hits and you know it's a really simple construction but what it needs is plankton it needs to have that tiny man Screaming his lungs, man. Plankton is man coded. That's my. We were going through so many like post hardcore songs last night that like Plankton needs to sing. Like I want Plankton's cover of Brand New's Vices so fucking bad, man. I I said, I said, um, what did I say? I said SpongeBob covering the quiet things that no one ever knows. Just because that, I I had about five minutes where I was imagining that in my head, and I was just fucking losing. (laughs) my mind like the covering king park <laughs> uh, just i just before i die i need to hear plankton screaming will i still get to heaven if i kill myself <laughs> i need it so bad someone please the, the the sam smith one that you sent is is the one for me is like <laughs> genuinely heartrending. yeah it really brings out like that's a different case compared to three days grace because the three days grace thing i went back to the original song and i was like this isn't it and still i think obviously that the sam smith song 
doesn't hit me the same way as the cover but i have more of an appreciation for how like actually emotionally powerful that song is just in terms of how it's written like it's a really yeah i mean yeah it's just a really yeah. fucking I, it just from the heart expression of like you know you call me but i know you know i know i'm not the only one and it's like and, and hearing that from him hearing that from plankton you know what i mean like it's that... it's a great song whose original singer just let it down and you know they have a real vocalist like plankton the thought i keep having as oh. well is like can this is a i i suppose a more a question about the technology i suppose and but it's kind of a philosophical question and some to some extent as well i wonder if the actual people who voice these characters would be able to deliver these performances is this something are we discovering mm. something that the technology is is able to make happen that wouldn't be able to happen from the real voices like that's what i want to know i want to hear i want to i want to hear uh mr lawrence which is the hilariously the actual name of the guy who voices plankton i want to hear him do try to do this i want to hear him try to i want to hear him try to hit like every note of the pot by tool you know i want to try actually to... credited as mr lawrence yeah yeah i didn't know that yeah i guess it's like i don't know uh, mr t i don't know that's a character what am i saying um <laughs> Mr. T wasn't a character. That was that was what he was credited as. Oh right, no, the character uh, was B. A. Baracus. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, Cl uh, Clubber Lang in Rocky Three. Yeah. Just a boxer named Clubber. Take one look at Clancy Brown and tell me that man can't deliver a powerhouse vocal performance. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think, and this is you know we've we've seen he he has the range, right? Clancy Brown is an incredibly mm -hmm. talented actor. So I, I believe he could do anything. Do I believe he could hit every single syllable perfectly on point of Rap God? Jury's out. Mm. But I would give him the benefit of the doubt. I think there would be some, on some level, it wouldn't, the Plankton thing, the Plankton doing I Hate Everything About You thing. I wonder if on some level, it, even if Mr. Lawrence could do that in real life, I wonder if it would have the same emotional impact for me. There's just something about the fact that I know that it's a machine that's just using these pieces of recordings to create this incredibly genuinely emotionally expressive thing there's something about that i guess blade runner-esque there's something about that contradiction about that paradox that enhances the feeling of it i don't know it's something to think about i want to change tone now uh if i can and talk about uh pay tribute to an artist who passed away uh this last week whose music's mean a lot to me brian mcbride who with his creative partner adam wiltsey and stars of the lid made some of the most impactful and moving ambient and drone music for me personally that i've ever encountered uh the music of stars of the lid's been a big part of my life and it's been music that i've loved for coming up on a decade i'm pretty sure it was 2013 when i first listened to the ballasted orchestra um an amazing record that is still the the final track on that is still something that i have on regular rotation if i ever need to put something on while i'm going to sleep music's beautiful for that but then with the way that they developed their sound through tired sounds in 2001 and refinement of the decline in 2007 two epic double disc two-hour records that 
are just beautiful in every respect, but like in totally different ways as well. Like Tired Sounds has this kind of like almost sort of mechanical, hazy, desert kind of darkness to it that I really, really respond to. You once described that as the soundtrack to a Cormac McCarthy novel uh, yeah. of like years ago. And I can't think of a better way to describe Tired Sounds. Yeah, just like tracks like Requiem for Dying Mothers, uh, Austin, Texas, Mental Hospital, uh, Piano at Kuyu, uh, Love Song for Cubs, just some beautifully, it's really hard to describe the timbre of that record. And, and that's one of the things that makes it so beautiful and appealing to me. And then Refinement of the Decline is just very different. It's much softer and smoother and richer sounding and more full of kind of like these warm but expansive horn sounds and these really rich ringing drones uh both astonishing albums that really really hold up and um and yeah ballasted orchestra like i said as well avic loudon and their earlier records are wonderful too and you know going back to their music this week it's been very emotional so i wanted to pay tribute to brian and just say that all of those records an immaculate discography uh, the way that they evolved from experimentations with tape hiss and this really analog crackling sound to move into this arena of gorgeous, rich horn drones, just really inspirational creatively. So yeah, big ups and uh, RIP to the king. One note on them. If uh, you are interested in listening to Stars of the Lit, if you haven't before and you want to use this as an excuse to appreciate some great music and you're not necessarily up for, you know, those big two hour double disc albums, I would highly recommend one of their more underrated releases, a uh, collaboration with uh, John McCafferty, Paraspera Ad Astra. Uh, I, I think that is a sensational record, only like 40 or so minutes, and it's uh, absolutely terrific. So if you, you know, want to give them some stuff, listen to the Ballasted Orchestra, listen to that. Great stuff. Next thing I want to talk about is that I've finally begun a journey through a discography that was assigned to me by Jake in the wake of our Jams and Tea music quiz this year. Myself, Morgan, and August were each assigned discographies, and I was quite excited about mine because I, Jake took this opportunity to get me to listen to a band that I hadn't really listened to ever, that I knew very little about, other than the fact that they were a Canadian punk band that came out of the 80s scene, and that band is No Means No. And so uh, over the last few weeks, I have spent some time listening. I've, I've begun my journey into their discography and I've listened to their first two albums. The first record, Mama, is a little bit more modest. They haven't really kind of fully found themselves at this particular point in their career. They didn't have very much money to record this with. So it's a very sort of rough around the edges debut that doesn't quite deliver on the promise of the intricate and layered punk that they would go on to deliver but i thought i enjoyed elements of this record very much i thought that it was it, it had it certainly has its charms especially in songs like red devil and uh, my roommate is turning into a monster but i also think that the record <laughs> picks up with some of the more sort of angular post-punky stuff in the back half as well songs like no sex and rich guns and no rest for the wicked were really good too but their sophomore uh, record, 1986's Sex Mad, was where I really started to get the vision uh, with No Means No. And I really started to understand, okay, I get why, first of all, I get why Jake recommended this band to me. I get why they are a really esteemed and beloved hardcore punk band. 
And I also understand how even from this point, they could ascend to greater heights because I'm still not yet at the pinnacle of their career. The generally agreed to be masterpiece that is wrong. I'm really excited to get to that very soon. But Sex Mad is a ridiculously fun punk album that takes a lot more from post-punk than I was expecting it to. Like specifically that mm -hmm. arty post-punk of Talking Heads and Devo comes through early in the record as well. But you have some real grimy darkness that comes through in songs like Dad as well and Self-Pity uh, and Revenge that I really responded to and really hit me on an emotional level that I wasn't expecting. As well as being thoroughly laced with the most ridiculous irreverence, you know, that would be par for the course for, the, for this kind of band. I mean, a song like Dead Bob, for instance, which <laughs> is so absurd in every respect. Roses are red, violets are blue. I hung myself, so fuck you. <laughs> that, that That's the spirit of 80s hardcore punk right there. I mean, that's that's your Dead Kennedys. Uh, which is another mm -hmm. band that I need to really spend some time getting to, and I will eventually as well. Uh, my father was of the sky, my mother was of the earth, and I am a stupid, cringing, ignorant, fucking little goof. Fucking amazing. And I mean, like, just the idea of an album being named Sex Mad. It's like, those are the two concerns on this album. Sex, anger. That's it. Well, and also, like, you know, I mentioned Devo. You know, a lot of this influence, a lot of that, seedier more sort of neurotic aspect of punk music this kind of sexual mm -hmm. frustration that comes from a kind of lack of fulfillment you know sexual frustration is one manifestation of a lot of the same larger you know constrictions and oppressions that feed into punk music as well yeah of course punk music is about you know societal rage and all of these aspects of big political systems that hold you back but a huge part of that is personal expression and self-actualization and sex and sexual identity and sexual frustration comes into that in a big way as well so it's not it's often you know sex and issues of sex and issues of sexual frustration are often kind of part and parcel with this wider societal thing that you get in a lot of this classic era punk music and no means no are kind of really just throwing that in your face with this album uh jake i want to throw over to you is there anything new release wise that you've been listening to that you want to shout out okay so i listened to something this week that i had I was of an artist I was not familiar with at all. Um, and the reason I became familiar with them is because of a friend of the podcast and music writer Hannah Jocelyn mentioned that Ethel Kane, of all people, did a song with this artist. And it is the closing track on their new debut album, that artist being Ash Nico. She's a very intentionally irreverent pop rap trap a very colorful incarnation of almost queer emo rap I, I guess is the best way to put it her debut album weed killer and so I took a <laughs> listen to the song on the album uh which is the closer dying star this song is really good honestly uh I I think that the Ethel Kane feature is actually utilized in a really interesting way and that on the chorus of this song Ashniko 
and Ethel kind of blend their vocals together in a nice little bit of harmony. And then Ashniko's vocals kind of like fade away and then Ethel kind of just takes center stage in the second half of the chorus. Uh, it's it's interesting, it's utilized really well. And overall, I think the song is very interesting. There are some like minor production flourishes and just like tiny itty bitty lyrical ideas that I am not like over the moon about. But in terms of just what the song is going for, I find it very interesting. And I find this, the subject material quite poignant um, as someone who has struggled with similar issues in their life before. So I saw that the album that this was on uh, and I saw that it was like 33 minutes and I was like, you know, I I'm going to give this a shot. And I went into this knowing that this album wasn't exactly being received super well but I still wanted to give it the benefit of the doubt because it feels like the kind of music that she makes is just designed for people to rip apart. I wanted to be like, okay, I get what she's going for a little bit here. So let, let's, let, let's give this a shot. Oh, it's bad. Oh, it's so bad. What's just demoralizing about this is that in concept, I get what she's going for and I want to like it. This whole project is very driven by a distinctly feminine queer rage. It kind of feels like she's going for a vibe of like trying to be a from even from like the 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 cover art too. It's like that she's going for a queer cupcake meets Arca, except it's pop rap. And I like the production sometimes. It's it's colorful, it's bright, it's occasionally catchy, it's fun, it's kind of ostentatious, it's it's tasteless. It's 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 everything you would kind of expect out of this. It occasionally leans into being a little bit annoying and provocative, but I I kind of feel like that's sort of par for course. The real problem on this album is the writing. And Again, it's very difficult to tell where to draw the line with something like this, because on the one hand, you, you want to be like, OK, this person is clearly trying to, you know, to, to poke and prod at the established idea of what we even think rappers are and, and can be and can, you know, make music about. And you're kind of like, how far can this go without just being really fucking annoying? And I think that line is well and due crossed on here. The, the, the biggest issue I have with it is that this seems to be written from the perspective of the Joaquin Phoenix Joker. There's just so many lines on here. It's all about like, I bring a blade to the dance floor. It's diet grimes is what this is. It's this very online, very like intentionally self-aware, but also like, feminine cutesy thing but like secretly it's got a dark edge behind it like ooh, what if all of this flowery cutesy shit was actually hiding or is it getting crazier out there uh, what if i was pink and pretty but also like i had fangs ooh. there's very compelling song ideas in here for what this is there is a song on here that's about um you know being younger and having like an earlier, you know, having a queer experience with another girl who kind of views you 
as a practice for the boys, whereas you are actually exploring your intended sexuality and then eventually uh, societal homophobia is still breaking you apart anyway. And like, these are ideas that conceptually I love and that I feel like could be tackled in this way. And then you listen to the song and you're just like, oh my God, make it stop. I hate listening to this. And it's like all of these songs are perverted by the style on which Ashniko takes. There are songs on here. It feels like I am bearing witness to something that you, that the music almost feels secondary to. It feels like, all right, you, you maybe should just take a moment to yourself alone. And uh, there are also songs on here like that kind of get close to this kind of tastelessness that I that I like. The opener, World Eater, um, the song Worms, they're, they have an abundance of cringy moments in them, but I can kind of take that as, uh, as part and parcel of the experience. However, the worst song on here, which is uh, Possession of a Weapon. Possession of the Pussy Weapon. My sacral chakra heavens threatened. It's just flesh. I can be grotesque. Move my body like chess. The, you have been this, I had to pause this song because I didn't understand what this meant. I was like, what do Stop you mean? selling. Move, move the body like chess. And then it's like eyes in the sky crying geysers. How dare I have my private desires. Don't rain on my paper mache. Don't rain on it. Don't rain on it. Say you want my body. Let me give it to you. Is that what you want? Blood and guts? Pussy teeth to imprison you? Little pills? I don't want to get high. I feel an ache where my mind was. I try to think, but it's no use. Tumbleweed, bloody knees. I would crawl through broken glass to get home. Borat voice. Position of the pussy reaper. <laughs> Musically, this song is a fucking nightmare it departs so so distinctly from the kind of candy floss production of the rest of it that you just it's a disaster and i i hate saying it too just because this this feels like something that took a lot of effort and again i appreciate what it's going for and i feel like there's a place for something like this again like i want a queer cringy kind of cupcake in the world because the world would be better if it had that in it it's just that not not like this not like this finally the last album i want to talk about today is the new album from spanish love songs no joy spanish love songs of course being one of the big sort of indie rock adjacent emo bands of the last several years responsible for one of our collective favorite albums of 2020 brave faces everyone which uh though my favorite album at the time that year was a tie between charlie xcx and jesse Weir. i've come to kind of almost dethrone both of them with this album just because of how much it's come to mean in my life like brave faces everyone is just you know it's one of those records like home no places there where it just becomes a part of the story of your life you know that this album existed and that it meant something to you at this point in time because that album's so resonant and so direct and so cutting and so unguarded you know even for emo which you expect to be all of those things by default but the way in which this record just cut through 
the moment that it existed in as well was just unbelievable. So we've been waiting for them to come back with the follow-up to that record as well uh, ever since. And they're finally here with, with no joy. And, you know, in some, in some ways I'm reminded a little bit of uh, always kind of an amalgam of the last two wonder years albums. I suppose the most recent wonder years album, the hum goes on forever kind of came to mind while listening to this a lot where it was like, the sound of a you know obviously the wonder years have been around a lot longer than spanish love songs when they put out their last album but that album hum goes on forever which uh is a beautiful record you know it had that kind of you know we've been angsty for so long we've been so you know wiry and and agree and you sort of life or death in our approach for so long how do we age gracefully Spanish love songs have kind of put themselves in a position of also needing to age gracefully, despite having a considerably shorter lifespan so far, because Brave Faces Everyone is just such a high stakes, high wire act of an album. It's just so emotionally intense and visceral that you have to, you know, you can't build on that while following it up, both because it's not sustainable, but also because it would feel like to some degree cheapening. Um, because that record just captures a viscera of its moments so powerfully that, you know, you need to move on from that. You need to, in some way, show how you survive in the wake of that, basically. And that's what No Joy is. You know, it's a record about, as you age from that particularly fraught state that you're at, that that record represents, how have you come to terms with your life since then? And how have you come, how have you found a way to live, basically? And that's basically what this record is about. While Brave Faces Everyone is such an internal album, it's about personal individual struggle. It's about the raw experience of debilitating depression in a crushing, oppressive environment. No Joy takes somewhat of a different approach in that a lot of the storytelling and writing on this record is kind of a, a second person perspective almost. It's the front man of this band, Dylan Slocum, and again, I don't know what, to what degree the stories and the things he talks about are real or fictional, but at least within the presentation of the album, a lot of these songs are about how you process someone else, someone important in your life, falling apart around you, basically, and how you try to help them, how you wish for the best for them, and how you reflect on to what degree has the struggle I've been through, the pain I've been through that I've chronicled actually prepared me for helping someone else? Has it really done that at all? Am I in a position to do that? Do I have the capacity to do that? Is it even on me to do that? Like I want to be supportive. I want to be helpful, but how do I go about doing that? That's a core dynamic of no joy. That feeling of paralyzing helplessness when things are going wrong for someone you care about and there's no clear way for you to steer the ship. Um, it's a really powerful framework for an album. And it comes through, it came through before the album was even out. That sensation came through powerfully on songs like Haunted, the lead single for this album, which is an incredible song, like just an utterly gut-wrenching song that also forecasted some of the ways in which their sound is evolving a little bit here as well. It's kind of opening up. I mean, the last album was so was kind of feely i say formulaic and i don't say that in a derogatory way it's just it's a very basic setup musically to really just let the emotional power of the writing take center stage whereas 
this album has is a bit more embellished it's a bit more filled out there's a higher presence of synthesizers on this record there's a little bit more of a fuller sound palette there's a wider array of musical influences on this compared to their previous work and so you have an album that's got a little bit more space and and in one respect i think that that additional space allows these songs to breathe and feel less claustrophobic than the songs on the previous record in that sense, the emotional brutality that this album can have doesn't quite blindside you in the way that it does on the previous album. But it also, I think, allows the record to get better with time. And that's the big thing with this album for me, is that the first time I heard it, I was really smitten with parts of it. And then there were other parts of it that didn't quite hit me on the level that I was hoping for. But I've really come across the course of this week to appreciate this album a little bit more than I did initially. And, you know, the band are in a difficult position for us with a record like Brave Faces Everyone, which is just, you know, unanimous across the board, 10 out of 10 level album. We're in a position of having to basically deal with the expectation for us personally that that, you know, gives this band. And so I think that while the album is not perfect and the album has some moments that feel a little bit more stagnant maybe than uh some of the strongest moments i do think that the album and just in terms of the arc of the band like the approach of these songs and the way in which the sound has been filled out it's a really positive step forward for spanish love songs you know because when you have a band like this putting an album like Brave Faces out so early into their career with that level of wiriness, of intensity, of, of life or death. You know, the the writing's on the wall for the longevity of a band like that. You know, there's just so much going into that. There's so much life and pain and, and everything going into that that you worry that, you know, there's going to be nothing left after that. You know, especially because it's not like the band had a huge amount of success, you know, critically or commercially. They're kind of were pretty under the underground for for a bit for a bit there but it seems like the new album's getting a little bit more attention which is good to see still not enough as far as i'm concerned i think that this album has not gotten the level of reception that i would have wanted it to get just in terms of acknowledgement you know let alone how much people are liking it or not but it seems as though you know the critics that have been reviewing this the you know response that it's gotten from music journalists has been really positive which has been great to see i have more specific thoughts that kind of go into a little bit more of what I was talking about in terms of the album's approach, but I, I don't want to hog all of the words here. So I want to throw over to you guys and, and just, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, after, you know, given that we've had a little bit, we've only had a week with it compared to the several years we've had with uh, Brave Faces, but how do you feel about the way that they've shifted? The step into Heartland rock that uh, the lead single haunted signifies definitely it was unexpected compared to how meat and potatoes instrumentally brave faces everyone was but uh i i love that song and it's either that or cleanup crew for the obligatory spanish love song spot on songs of the year for me the album as a whole i think is much less immediate i think a lot of that's felt in the shift in perspective on the writing um that's not to say that the this album is any less well written um, I think it's a little more fleshed out even in certain ways than Brave Faces Everyone was. But I think instrumentally, this is at once very new for them and on the other hand, sort of 
familiar because there was always a, a, like a heartland rock tinge to brave faces everyone but now that they le- they've leaned f- more fully into the sort of the 80s influence of that sound i think there are uh, a fair few spots on here that fail to resonate with me as strongly as something as brave faces everyone did i don't know how unfair it is to hold up uh this album in comparison to that one i mean part of me is like well i mean it's obviously not going to be that album but regardless it's it's sort of in an unenviable position for us specifically as you said and i think it is i mean part of it is the brunt of those expectations and i think part of it just is that it's not as good of an album mostly musically i think slocum's writing is like i said you know in some places it's even uh, stronger and more well-rounded uh, than it was on Brave Faces. Everyone, I think, uh, topics covered are a little more broad, but they don't lose any of the the specific intensity of uh, Brave Faces. Everyone, yeah, it's it's hard to quantify, and it is it's still sifting through both the weight of expectation and the thing that the album actually is. I find myself in a bit of a similar place honestly i love the parts of this album that work for me as much as i love the songs on brave faces everyone and i am again this gives the impression that i'm a lot more negative on the album than i actually am but i have to be honest is that the things on this album that don't work for me as well i am just kind of ambivalent on really And it's frustrating just because this is a conscious attempt by the band to expand their sound, to expand their palette, to basically do everything that a band like this theoretically should do and that we would appreciate them doing. Because not only are they, you know, expanding themselves, they're going in a direction that we as a podcast tend to appreciate a little bit more. This Heartland Rock blended with like elements of post-punk kind of stuff. Like, I mean, we eat this up on a regular basis and i want to highlight at least the parts of it that do really work for me notably i think that the first three songs on here are as great as anything on brave faces everyone in my opinion at least this band have impeccable opener and closer game like they nobody is doing it like spanish love songs is frankly i think that lifers is a wonderful wonderful song that also kind of pushes to the forefront the kind of ethos of this album which again i also really fucking appreciate and that it's an attempt to despite the fact that it's called no joy they're kind of going in a direction that feels like they're a bit more emotionally multifaceted and that's not a slight against brave faces everyone again like that's an album that's a little bit more single-minded but basically in what it does it spreads itself so like broadly it explores every possible facet of what it does dylan slocum not only as a performer is like immediate and grabbing and fantastic but like as a writer as a storyteller on songs like kick for example he weaves narratives that are as compelling as anybody who seeks to do storytelling in music and i feel like that's true for the best moments on here lifers is incredible the second song on here pendulum i fucking love one of my absolute favorite songs this band have ever made and haunted as said i think is just you know an s-tier spanish love songs track 
terrific stuff. And I also want to shout out the closer on here, Reemerging Signs of the Apocalypse. That is the, the, basically, this is everything I could have possibly wanted out of a closer for an album like this. Everything in between, I'm supremely mixed on. I think the key to sort of unlocking my thoughts is something that Riley said, is that a lot of these songs, they're a lot less claustrophobic than Brave Faces Everyone. They're a lot less immediate. Um, you know, that album is very much emo, pop punk, you know, really immediate hit, 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 hit kind of thing. Big, full mixes, big sound, amazing stuff. Uh, this is, again, it's going for a, a deeper, wider sound palette, and it's leaving a lot more space in them. And I think my problem that I kept coming back to over and over again as I tried to revisit this, and I was just desperate to have it fully click with me, is that the space that is created by a lot of these instrumentals from a musical standpoint is kind of uncompelling. I, I find a lot of these ideas to be a bit languid, a bit languorous. And I was wanting the sort of maturity of this direction to sort of hit me eventually of just being like, oh, it's it's with this purpose, it's with this intent. I get why they're doing this here. But it feels like the expansion of their sound comes at a bit of a cost for some of these songs, structurally speaking. Uh, namely, there's just sort of a middle stretch here from like middle of nine, Marvel, I'm gonna miss everything. Songs that writing wise, for the most part are incredible again this is a this is an album that's going for an angle that feels uh, considerably less defeatist than the last record and again indulging in that kind of zoomer defeatism is what made brave faces everyone so cathartic and so great and it feels like this album kind of exists as sort of you know a bit of a counterpoint to that it, it feels like us an album like the last one you make that record and it's almost like you're you're so downtrodden at that point like where do you go thematically other than i have consigned myself to the trash heap of history here on the other hand there's it's about finding reasons to be alive it's about finding you know something in someone else to keep yourself going when you don't have anything and i love that and again slocum as a performer and as a writer on point as he's ever been but a lot of the more ambitious moments i guess where they're going for a bigger sound it just doesn't really work for me. To me, this is an album where they are trying to spread themselves just a bit too thin. And it's at such like at such a macro level that I just have a really, really difficult, really challenging time latching on to all of the great qualities that this album does possess. I have not wanted to love what an album is going for more than No Joy this year. And I just haven't gotten there yet. I'm not denying that it could uh, eventually click with me, but as of right now, it's just it's 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 a very frustrating record because its highs are so high, and I love them so much. And I guess to to the point on my thoughts is that I am no less excited to see where Spanish love songs go on from here because I think that they have the opportunity to refine themselves into something that's a better, tighter package from here on out. But right now, I'm a bit in limbo. I don't agree. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to plan a transition there, and then I just I couldn't get it. Man, there. why has it always got to be me? Well, I, I don't agree with both of you. It's not just you, Jake. Uh, well, I, I don't share some of these uh, limitations uh, with the album. 
particularly with regard to the sound, which is actually kind of one of my favorite things about it. I think the record sounds incredible. And um, particularly in the moments where they let these sort of embellishments of Heartland Rock, I suppose, which are more like textural nods as opposed to full-on commitments to that aesthetic, really give these songs an additional space, which makes the album feel alive in a different way. You know, with Brave Faces, everyone, that life, that vibrancy comes from the life or death immediacy of what Dylan is almost screaming about. Whereas here there's a, an energy of survival. There's an energy of, of finding a way to thrive that comes through in the vibrancy of the way this record sounds. I also think that these are two very different records in terms of the best way to consume them. I think, you know, brave faces, everyone as a real headphones, you know, you're feeling like shit record, you know, where you're really kind of withdrawn into yourself and you just need a kind of outlet to get some kind of immediate catharsis. This is an album that I think you need to have on a fucking car stereo. You need it. And I had a pretty fundamental experience with this record this week when I went for a drive and threw it on and the, and the sun was out and the windows were down. And it was like, this band was suddenly delivering an experience to me that I would typically go to a band like the fucking war on drugs for. And yet they were selling it. They were, they were embodying and putting this, you know, hard on sleeve pop punk style emo into that space and it was just breathtaking, particularly with a song like Marvel as well, which is not one of my absolute favorites on the album, but just that's where I think the Heartland rock influence is most keenly felt and best realized. This is just a huge, enormous song that makes me feel, it, it makes me feel overcome in the best way possible with that refrain of stay alive out of spite as well, which is, you know, there's lyrical there's lyrical nods to the previous record on this album as well. I mean, the most pointed one is in Haunted, where he, you know, directly refers to that um it won't be this bleak forever lyric from self-destruction on the previous mm. album. But it's like on that record, it was it won't be this bleak forever. Yeah, right. The idea there was taking these platitudes, these reassurances, and essentially saying, Well, this is no fucking good to me. You know, this real ball of negativity basically where the platitudes and the assurances don't help you whereas here the line is it will be this bleak forever but it is a way to live you know it's it's not a platitude anymore it's like kind of denying the platitude but not just turning that into another reason to spiral basically it's saying you know the platitude is a platitude it's not all that useful and, and it's not all that believable but that doesn't matter. You know, there's still a way to, it's still a way to live, you know, there's still a way through it. And what I like about it is that, you know, Haunted's almost in a dialogue with self-destruction where it's like Haunted is a song where this person, where Dylan's perspective is trying to comfort someone who Dylan feels is sort of sliding out of view from him and heading to a really, really dangerous place. And it almost feels like there's a conversation between these two songs that's alluded to with that lyric. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Um, and I agree with, uh, I, I mean, I agree with basically all the positive things that you said, Jake. I think the record starts absolutely on its best foot. I think that, you know, Pendulum as well is a, is a great song. It has a little bit more of a kind of, uh, there's a moment here where the guitar does something like a boom, 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 boom. It reminded me a little bit of like, like the woodpile by Frightened Rabbit, which is a really random. Yeah, song. yeah. Obviously Frightened Rabbit, a big influence on this band. Um I would extend the um, greatness of the opening run to Clean Up Crew, which might be my favorite song. I mean, this is the one that's the most fun to sing along to, I think. 
with that you have me there for a second that that chorus just comes in and i'm completely mindless like this is the one that i was belting the most melodramatically on my um car ride listen and um you know there's elements of songs like middle of nine that remind me a little bit of more recent manchester orchestra records that are and i and yeah, yeah i think the way that they've evolved their sound here is not all that different to the way that manchester orchestra make records with that kind of dreamier sound that they apply to what is basically an, a, a straightforward emo aesthetic or indie rock aesthetic i suppose um so I, I appreciated that and then there was just moments where the song itself is maybe not as strong like from a you know elemental level like it's not the this 10 out of 10 master class and verse chorus verse bridge chorus you know there's songs that aren't quite there structurally in the way that big songs like haunted and cleanup crew and lifers are but that exists to deliver another moment of raw catharsis i think i'm gonna miss everything is, is a great example of this as well by the time you get to the end of this song and dylan's just screaming i'm gonna miss everything and every person i've been or am going to be over and over again it doesn't matter to me that the song isn't much because that moment is the kind of thing I come to this band for and it's there and it's hard. Uh, I want to shout out as well. We haven't really talked about or singled out as a highlight, I suppose the musicality of the band here, but I actually think they've become considerably more sophisticated and I want to shout out, especially uh, let me get this right. I want to shout out, especially drummer Ruben Duart, who is doing some incredible stuff on this record rapture chaser. His drumming on that song is unreal. Like the man is going mm -hmm. completely nuts. He's doing some Jason Gerrich cloud nothings level drumming. Uh, and it's just like, it adds such a volatility to the song. It adds such a dynamic to the song. It's so intense, especially when, again, this song delivers another one of the biggest moments of catharsis on the album. You know, the pain, if everyone's gone in rapture, why don't you want to get better? And that to me is one of the biggest kind of emotional gut punch moments of the whole album, because I can relate to that when you're so despondent and so helpless in your inability to help someone that you're just basically reduced to screaming, why don't you want to get better? <laughs> you know, you, you completely, you're trying so hard to do the right thing and to be supportive in the right way. But the fact that it isn't working and the fact that you are powerless and you're running up against your own limits, despite having gone through all of the same trauma yourself, you know, it's a really emotional moment on the album because I, I relate to it so deeply here You Are has a fantastic lyrical passage where he talks about an encounter with a kid with a trust fund, asking him why he's not famous, and then, then saying- Amazing himself, lyric. I wonder if I take his fucking skin if I can stay in my apartment. That's a little bit of a meta-commentary moment where it's like, um, you know, you're in a band and you're speaking about a very specific experience that a lot of people who are particularly privileged will not be able to understand, but then getting approached by someone who's coming from that higher position of privilege and being like, Hey dude, you're amazing. Why aren't you bigger? Like, yeah, it's a great moment of, of levity. How about you go fuck yourself? Uh, like, do you think if I knew the answer to that question, I would have to have this conversation with you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the band, has, there's a great acoustic ballad here, Exit Bags, which is one of the songs I think I initially underrated, but coming back to the album, it just hits really, really hard. And A Re-Emerging Signs of the Apocalypse is a great ending as well. I, I think that song is enormous and really is kind of the high point of the record's change in philosophy, I suppose, where Dylan like tries to reconcile this internal conflict of desiring happiness 
but feeling as though you don't deserve it. Your happiness is a war crime is a, is a lyric on this album that really stands out that sense with which, you know, as Dylan has achieved a little bit more success and as he's put into a position where he has a little bit more privilege than he used to have a little bit more of a position to speak out than he used to have a little bit more power, even if it's all still relative, suddenly your depression comes crashing in, your sense of self-doubt and your sense of self-worth comes crashing in. And you're saying to yourself, well, maybe I don't deserve to be happy now. You know, why should I be happy uh, when, you know, why, why should I embrace this success that I've had as small as it might be? And, and that moment again, feels very real and feels very vulnerable. And it's the opening point in the song for a real reflection on what Dylan believes is the way forward. I wish they'd come in at night and let the optimist die. I pray to God that we go quick. Let's not romanticize it. Just let the noise of the feedback start to rise. It still is the way it is. It had to balance in the end, and we're a part of the equation. This idea of dropping optimism, dropping this sense of needing to believe that things might get better and that things you know, dropping the sense of, of deluding yourself or of pretending that the future will or won't be any particular way and also romanticizing your sadness, also lifting that up and just taking this position of being in the moment constantly and letting yourself remember that surviving each one of those moments is meaningful. Very uh, break on panting of a panic attack. Absolutely. It's a crushing into the record. So yeah, while I, I do uh, sympathize to a certain extent with feeling a little bit cold on some of the ways in which the band have employed these changes and, you know, not every song works for me as well There's no matter how many times I listen to this record, I still feel that the song uh, mutable is kind of forgettable. Like that song. Yeah. Just stay with me very much but pretty much the rest of the record i'm more or less in love with to varying degrees again i think that it's it certainly um puts its strongest foot forward from the jump but i've come to appreciate this more and more in those in those central moments where they really embrace that heartland rock sound when i have the right frame of mind and when i'm in the right kind of when i was in the right position to experience this band in that context it really did land for me so yeah, uh, it's a record I'm going to be listening to off and on throughout the year on rotation, like many uh, great records like it. It still looks to me like so far emo AOTY is uh, between Home Is Weir and Hot Mulligan. Hot uh, Mulligan. But, uh, you know, this is an admirable, you know, sort of, if not bronze medal, then it's admirably like placed. You know, this is an admirable, like, you know, it's on the chart for me in terms of emo this year. And I just, I'm, I'm grateful we have this band. I'm grateful this band were able to even make this album. You've got to remember, like, with any band of this size, in terms of um, cultural presence and awareness, once you get beyond album two or three, like, getting anything, them being able to finance and continue to record and tour at all is a miracle. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy we have the, this. The love for Brave Faces, everyone, was essentially, like, a specific pool of music listeners basically brute forcing that album into a level of success. Like, I mean, what, a, an album like that having 2000 ratings on Rate Your Music, for example, as one gauge of its popularity is kind of nuts uh, on the one hand. And the fact that so many people were looking forward to their next album is a miracle in and of itself. 
for the record, I did kind of try your uh, Carstereo test, but um, it kind of accentuated all my problems with the album in a lot of ways where I just kind of ended up enjoying what I enjoyed more and being a little bit colder on what I didn't really work for me as well in a similar light. But at the same time, I think the best way to look at this album is less an album in its own self-contained form and more a direct counterpoint to Brave Faces. Well, not to say that it should live in the shadow of that album, but I feel like looking at them as twin records of exploring the same ideas and eventually like progressing and growing into where we are at No Joy, that's the best light in which I view it as a basically a a mirror image of the last record. And that's where I think its strengths as an experience truly lie. As a self-contained thing, I feel like it leaves a little bit to be desired. But at the same time, this is still one of the best modern emo, pop punk, whatever fucking genre tag you want to label them, uh, doing it right now. Uh, So if you want to get on board with this band, I would highly recommend maybe listening to something like Schmaltz first and then kind of just going in order of these records because I feel like you can appreciate the continuity of their evolution really, really solidly, regardless of where you come down in terms of your preference. 100%. So let us know what you think of any of the records we've discussed today, any of the news we've discussed today uh, in the comments below. Look, we love hearing from you. We've been getting some great comments recently. Really grateful for that as well. And for the continued presence and support. If you want to go above and beyond and become a direct supporter and member of the Jams and Tea family for just $1 a month, you can hit the join button. You get your name and the title call of every video on this channel. Plus, if you want to recommend us some music to talk about on the channel, your recommendation will go to the top of the pile. Until next time, though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, Disneyland. It won't be this bleak forever.